Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. All right, so um, tonight, hopefully not over over uh, pressing the point because it's a warm night. Um, I wanted to put one more piece in the Going Beyond Jesus um, series of talks that we've been doing. This will be my fifth. Chris has, Chris has done one. She did the last one. So the six, the six in all. Um, and then we'll probably leave it for a little bit and have a think about it. But um, uh, it triggers out the two things, for those of you who don't know, it's good to see people, good to have Bruce and Christine with us tonight, all the way from from Bury as well. And uh, it, it springs out of um, a continuing process of, of struggle in my own life and thought. And I don't mean that in a negative way, although sometimes, obviously, struggle feels very negative. Uh, because of the very nature of what it is, you know, it's it's struggle. Uh, it comes with evaluating um, my own faith, my own self. Um, also questioning having been, in the best terms I understand it, a follower of Jesus for 52 years. Um, the whole issue of how we can become institutionalized, we start flowing on autopilot. So you just do what you always did. And um, I read something today which I thought was good for those of you a little bit students of history and, and um, spiritual history that um, um, out of the Reformation in 1517 with you know Martin Luther at the core and then of course John Calvin and uh, both the good and the damage that they did, which I'm not sure which outweighs the other one. Um, out of that came something called Reformed Theology. And Reformed Theology took what, what grew out of Martin Luther's conflicts with the Catholic Church and, and created then an established doctrinal system. Most of it emerged into Calvinism. And for any of you that, that know the whole tulip, five steps, Calvinism, all that thing. All that emerged out of that. But there is a whole school that, that, is called, that, that was called Reformed Theology. And the problem with Reformed Theology is just that, that it's Reformed. See, once the Reformation moved from Reformation to Reformed, it had completely lost its purpose. The whole point of the Reformation was to rescue and, and rest from the hands of institutionalized thinking and all that that had become, to rest from that, that the pure wonder of the gospel and of the Christ, and to begin again the wonderful journey of discovering not the church and Christ as part of the church, but Christ, and then whatever the people were, the church, the ecclesia, as, as part of that process of an ongoing movement of revelation and um, I, I think I felt more secure but probably robbed myself of many things in my 
emerging spirituality because I could argue that I was evangelical Pentecostal reformed in that everything that I believed was buttoned down, tied down. This was it. This was only it. And anybody who didn't have it were not really with what was happening. Of course, you know, I've said to you before that when people say the Bible clearly says, you know, 33,000 denominations in the world and growing prove that the Bible doesn't clearly say much about much, if we're really honest. Um, it gives us some guidelines and pointers. And so, of course, out of that struggle, there are some things that you encounter and come across, and I believe it's God within it, that begin to stimulate your thinking into different avenues where um, the old can be let go of and the new can come in. And um, it doesn't suit everybody. I know that now as a pastor that... Um, uh, people would much rather have in church um, the security of fixed and defined beliefs and not be on a journey of faith because um, that gets risky and dangerous because it changes and it moves and and it demands something of us as we move with that. But uh, I wouldn't want it to be any different. So um, I wanted to carry on this conversation about um, going beyond Jesus. Um, can I make a bold statement? I think, I think, please understand me on this and don't read more than it. I think we have overemphasized Jesus at the expense of understanding Christ. The, the, the name Jesus means he who saves. And, and I absolutely, with every fiber of my being, believe that that Jesus was the Son of God incarnate and that he is he who saves. But that was never meant to be the story. It was meant to be part of the story, but it was not the story. And we are not called Jesusians. We're called Christians because we have sought to move to something or should have been drawn to something that says, what is it within the whole story from when time didn't exist to, to when in one sense, time no longer exists, that drives this whole thing? What is the mechanism into which Jesus emerged as a physical human being capable of dying? What is the whole mechanism? What is the part within that? And therefore, how must we understand beyond Jesus what the whole thing is about? And, and that's where we began to talk about the, the whole issue of trying to understand the Christ as distinct from Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't the Christ, but it means that the Christ is more than Jesus. And that is provable from Scripture. I believe it's also provable just from ob observing our world and observing things as they are. So we'll, we'll revisit some of those a little bit, because what I want to do tonight is just um, take a snapshot of some thoughts from the last four messages, and then add a little bit onto that as we go, so that it, it keeps our minds turning over um, on what it is we've already heard, so that we can we can build on and add to that. So, in Scripture, as I read it, um, I think there's a clearly a push towards something more than just the story of one small group of people in one small part of the world at one period of time for one event. And the word I'd use to define what that is would be the following. I would say it's a revelation of the mystery of the Christ. 
I've already said to you that I think, I think Judeo-Christian is a misnomer. It, it's, it's, it, it doesn't work because you can't be Judeo and Christian. That's why, that's why ultimately Paul said in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor, nor slave nor free. There's none of these things that, that you can't make those di dis distinctive divisions when you come to Christ. Now, some people think when you say this that therefore you are dismissing the role of the nation of Israel or the Jewish nation within the process. I would say absolutely we are not because everything has to happen somewhere with someone at some place in time. Just because that happens, there are others who think then therefore the whole of Scripture and the whole revelation that comes through the Christ is simply a Jewish story, right, that should, should not be taken outside of the context of, of the history of the Jewish people and that much of what was written was only written as a representation of the history of the Jewish people. I would disagree with that. I would say some of it is, and, and it's obviously deeply influenced by that, just as it would be if, if these events had happened in Great Britain or in France or in Germany with English or French or German people, there would be, there would be bents and influences on that would, would be very evidently nationalistic, but the story is much bigger than that. So, so Israel and the Jewish people were a vehicle, and of course, their history, their way of thinking is important to us, but it's a vehicle to bring us to something more than just their journey, just their story. I also say that because um, it can also be perceived as you move into a more open and inclusive uh, understanding of what revelation is and how wide that revelation is, that therefore um, scripture as it is as we know it in the Bible is being diminished or relegated, but I would say that is also absolutely not true. I think it is allowed to take its proper place within what is also a much wider voice. You know, because Jesus didn't say, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that will be written in the Bible. He said, we don't live by bread alone, but we, 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 we live by every word that proceeds, that gushes from the mouth of the Father. So his, his, his emphasis is towards a place where something is gushing into the world, into the universe, into humanity, that's been gushing from the beginning of what we understand as time. I believe it's been gushing since the universe came into existence and continues to gush today and continues to come. And that the reality of that experience is the same reality today as it would have been at any period in time uh, in any nation, in any place in history. So I think, I think that all of this is about an unfolding revelation of the mystery of the Christ. Now, Paul calls it a mystery because it is, and a mystery means it's something that is not readily or necessarily visible, but once you uncover it, it's blowing obvious. And there is a way to, to read Scripture. There's a way to... There's a way to hear other voices as well within, within the context of our wider world and wisdom that comes that allows us to begin to see that this Christ thing is much bigger 
than a little story that we have often limited to 33 and a half years of time in one nation at one time. In fact, most people limited it to three and a half years from when Jesus began his ministry, that this thing is bigger and it's been going on since the beginning. In fact, it's been going on before the beginning. And when we begin to understand that, what happens is the limitations that we have put on a religious concept of a small Jesus becomes exploding into something that is an absolute revelation, manifestation, expression, and gift from all that the eternal divine being that we know as God is. Now, I don't know if you know it, just a little bit of history here, but uh, the first seven councils of the church, when you read through church history, um, where both the Eastern group of the church and the Western group of the church agreed, were all either convened or formally presided over by emperors. So, so these, are, these are the important, well, I say important with some reservation because I'm not sure how important some of them really were. But things like if you've been around church history, you'll, you'll hear things like, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Council of Nicaea and all of these, you know, these things that are in there. Um, places where, you know, the apostles, what? Yeah, like historical markers. Um, and where things like doctrine were decided upon and I think, you know, almost put in stone like the Ten Commandments. But what's interesting when you look is that, is that these, the, the, the first seven, with East and West coming together, all presided over or convened by emperors. Now think about that. What, what then is likely to be the emphasis and the outcome of those councils when they are convened or ruled over by an emperor? It's not a small point. Emperors and governments don't tend to be interested in an ethic of love or service or non-violence and surely not forgiveness unless it somehow helps them to stay in power. So I would propose to you that within those councils there were influences because of the empirical thinking that began to shape Christianity into what we have seen it become, which to a great degree has become overbearingly institutionalized and closed and tribal and smaller than it should be because of those kind of influences and they have pervaded the way that, that, that church is, is shaped. There's another thing that was interesting there. Have you ever noticed the huge leap in the Apostles' Creed, you know, the one we believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth and etc., etc. It's interesting that, that the Apostles' Creed make, makes no distinction between born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. So it says, we believe that he was born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. A single comma connects those two statements. And falling into that yawning gap as if it were a mere detail is everything else between. So, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate. What about, what about the 33 and a half years between that? What even about the, the three and a half years from the baptism of Jesus 
to the crucifixion of Jesus, no mention of that in the Apostles' Creed. Almost like somehow there are elements in here that, that are just skipped over because we've narrowed down this whole thing to an event, an important event, a necessary event, but like it's nothing more than the event. Do you understand what I'm saying? So now we've already seen in the last few weeks, according to Paul, the great mystery revealed to humanity is not the virgin birth. That's not talked about as a mystery. It's not, it's not the resurrection. It doesn't say the resurrection was a mystery. It's not even creation. But the mystery that Paul talks about is one thing. He says the mystery is this and this alone. Christ in you. It's not even Christ becoming Jesus. It's not even Christ in Jesus dying on the cross. But the mystery, he says, is Christ in you. He therefore begins to give us that the purpose is not about us being in something, but it's about someone, some presence, some power, something eternal actually being fully and totally and completely in us. Here's what it says in Colossians 1 verse 25. I've become its servant by the commission of God that he gave to me to present you the word in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. That's the point of the ages. That's what all this was ever about. It was never about getting people to heaven or getting them to join a particular brand of church or, or religion. It was about Christ being in you. That was the whole point. So everything is leaning towards how do we understand the process by which Christ is in us. So Colossians 2 verse 2 also says about Christ. It says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you know, believer or unbeliever, wherever you stand in this, it, it would suggest that, that, that Paul believes that there is something about, about all the, the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that when you find this Christ in you thing, that, that there, is, there is within that a wisdom and a knowledge that begins to accompany that and flow with that and flow through that, whether you call that divine revelation, inspiration, whatever you might want to call it, it flows with that understanding of the Christ in you. So, I believe because of this that there's a universal transcendent reality of Christ apart from Jesus that contains within it more than can be seen in the narrowed down view of Jesus alone. Now, again, don't don't misread me. This is not that Jesus is not important. What it's saying is Jesus is part of something bigger in, in, in the revelation of who he is because actually Jesus did not exist before he became Jesus. You know, John says the word was in the beginning. The word was with God. The word was God. Now, that sounds a bit weird and far-fetched for us, but it's really saying the essence of how things come into being was always there. But there came a point where that, that manifested in flesh form as Jesus. 
But Jesus wasn't Jesus until he was born Jesus. Do you see what I mean? You will, you will give birth to a son, you'll call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. There was a purpose in that particular manifestation and revelation which was precious and wonderful and necessary, but we must look beyond that to understand the fullness of what, what Christ is, is all about. I call that a universal transcendent reality, something bigger. Now, now the Apostle Paul, of course, who is the you know, major contributor to the, the New Testament, he, he endorses this in many ways. And I think his propositions prove that Christ did not emerge on the scene with the birth of Jesus. Because here's what he says, Colossians 1 verse 17, about the Christ, he is before all things. In him all things hold together. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So this is before Jesus existed as Jesus. But this is also a killer one that Paul throws in. We, we've done a lot more than this, but this is just a summary. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says in verse 1, For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers, our Jewish forefathers, to him were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea which was a type of baptism you know the moisture of the cloud above and the the sea beneath and around they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food listen to this and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ Therefore, Paul says, Christ was with the children of Israel in their journey from Egypt in the middle of the desert before Jesus was ever a thing that we could talk about. Christ was with these people and they drank from that rock which was Christ. So, so Paul's making the case that Christ has always been, Jesus was an expression of Christ, that's why he's Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus, but we also separate those two names at parts in the gospel, which might seem synonymous, but Paul's actually making a point of differentiation. Now, let me also say here that what we said is that if you are led down a certain track, you will misinterpret Christ to be Messiah. But if Christ is Messiah in the Jewish context, then we don't have a Christ because we don't need a Messiah because we're not in the position where those people were. So it's more than that. It's always more than. So, so when we begin to look at the Christ, it's exploding our understanding of, of how we see God in the context of how that relates to us and how God wants to manifest himself with us, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I also believe that the Jews confused the Christ who is universally transcendent with the tribal Messiah. That's why I said what I said about how if you just interpret Christ as Messiah, the sad thing is it becomes tribal. And not only does it become tribal, but it becomes limited. It becomes tribal unto some rather than always unto all. And of course, you know, the Apostle Paul was wrestling with this as he tried to teach particularly congregations that had grown up 
as, 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 as people who'd, who'd put their faith in Christ, trying to get through to them that you have to leave your Jewishness behind in the way that you understand your Jewishness because what you're doing is being tribal and now you think others can't be included. So we've got patches in there of conversations, one with Peter about his old confusion even after the crucifixion and resurrection of how could Gentiles, non-Jews, be part of this? And um, he had to be shown that, that God has called clean what they always believed to be unclean, which went to their Jewish rituals of unclean animals, etc., etc., which the law was all about, but also extended to people. Isn't it interesting how sometimes we can handle belief as long as it doesn't include the people that we don't think should be included and they didn't think the Gentiles should be included so it was tough for Peter what the point was was when he was shown that revelation of the sheep with the unclean animals in and he was told to rise and eat it was very evident that he had the same view of non-Jewish people as he had of those animals that they saw as unclean these were unclean you don't touch them they can't ever be included in anything that's holy and righteous. But the wonderful thing is, you know, the voice that came to him says, eat it all. I've called it all clean. Now, again, if we just limit that to say, okay, that's great. We can have bacon sandwiches and black pudding, which, you know, that to me would have been a great gospel anyway. It would have, it would have sufficed, you know, come to Jesus, you can eat black pudding and you can have bacon, which the Jews couldn't do. Brilliant. But, but the point was bigger than that. He was now coming to humanity and saying, don't you dare call unclean what I've called clean. Somehow there had been, it's funny, it was a sheet. There'd been a blanket declaration of cleanliness. There were reasons why these animals, creatures, were called unclean. And it wasn't just because it's like, you know, one day God's thinking, I don't really like pigs, you know, dirty animals. And I'm not into seafood, so, you know, lobster and prawns. and th Those things were named for a reason. It's because what they participated in, you know, if they were bottom feeders in the ocean or, or if, they were, if they were pigs in the heat of the desert. Uh, interestingly, I learned that, you know, we use the term sweat like a pig when pigs don't sweat. So, it's like, well, where do... Where does that leave me? But actually, that's the problem, you see, because in, in a hot country, the toxins from, from the pigs in the hot country would go back into the meat. So all of these things were wise, but, but what I'm saying is that, that what these creatures did and how they behaved was why they were called unclean, to protect them in terms of hygiene and health and diet in the desert, but how does that extend to people? Because now the word to Peter is extended to people. People that are in situations, do things, are part of things that sometimes you would say, well, that can't be right. But, but it's like, so we're happy for the animals to be called clean, a blanket word that says, don't you call unclean what I've called clean. But then often the church can't extend that to people. When you find the Christ... You'll find that you get there with all of that. So they made it tribal to some and rather uh, uh, tribal unto some rather than always unto all, and finished up with a static religion rather than a reformation movement. 
And I think out of that, there's always been a seeking to constrain, restrain, hijack and tribalize the revelation of the one who transcends all things. And Christianity has been no different in trying to restrain and confine and put within what we would call doctrinal boundaries or denominational structures, things that restrict this and won't let it out of the box. So, then we moved on to, um, we looked at two narratives whose events are separated by 1,500 years but are remarkably connected. And one is a loose geological record of the birth of Jesus and the other stages of a journey and where we looked at in Matthew 21 it gives it gives the genealogy of Jesus coming coming forward in generations and uh, I'm not going to read it because we, we looked at it you can hear it on the other messages if you want to have a listen and um, and you can read it but it gives three sets of 14 generations um, you know from Abraham, David, to the exile, and then to the Christ. 14, 14, 14. Which 14 plus 14 plus 14 is 42. So we have there recorded 42 generations. However, what we showed was when you count the names in that genealogy, at 41 names you arrive at Jesus. So it says so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and so-and-so the son of so-and-so. And then it gets, to, it gets to Joseph, who was thought to be the father of Jesus, who was the son of so-and-so. And then Jesus, and that's only 41 names, but there's 42. And when you look for the 42nd name, the 42nd name in there is Christ. It says, Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. Born Jesus called Christ and the 42nd name in there is Christ now now I don't know about you but I, I take that very seriously because I believe what it's showing is a couple of things there were two generations in the one man that Jesus marked a crossing over point now getting to, if you got technical theologically you could say he marked the transition from 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 old Adam to Christ right the restoration of all things he marked the change of what happened in Adam is now been transferred what was lost has been restored and that's restored in Christ so Jesus was the transition to the revelation of the Christ so there's 42 generations but but there's two names there Jesus is the 41st Christ is the 42nd the 42nd is the last generation ever mentioned in Scripture and Scripture talks a lot about generations but it doesn't talk about us finishing at the generation of Jesus. It talks about us finishing at the generation of the Christ. Therefore, what I propose to you, whether I have insight or not on this, and how much insight I have, it is critically important that we understand what the revelation of the Christ is and how we become part of that generation. And the knowledge and wisdom that is in that and that, that draws us through to that. So... So we have 41 names to Jesus. The 42nd name is Christ. What's fascinating is in Numbers 33, Numbers chapter 33 in the Old Testament, it catalogues the journey of the children of Israel when they were freed from Egypt, slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh, to when they enter into the land of promise, right? And what, whatever that indicates, means, whatever, it, you know, 
whether you call it the resting place, the, you know, the objective, the goal, this is what this was all about to bring you to the place of, of freedom. I, I also have another thought on that, which I, I for many years have not liked the phrase, the promised land, because that suggests that the culmination of this amazing journey of God making his presence with them finished on basically a piece of dirt, a piece of real estate, the promised land. When you flip that around and think about it as the land of promise, it extends that revelation, the story, the, the, the understanding, the, the, the appreciation of the journey to something else that, that we also, not being Jews, not coming out of a land called Egypt, not going to a place of real estate, but we are still people who are coming to a land of promise. Right? And there's lots more we could say to validate that um, biblically if, 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 you know, if, if that was required. But what's interesting is Numbers 33, it, it uses this phrase. It says, and they left, they left Egypt and they camped at. And they left there and they camped at. And they left there and they camped at. And so when you look at all those, what's interesting is um, you get 41 camps mentioned. And those 41 camps bring you to the banks of the, the River Jordan. And it was the River Jordan that separated the then children of Israel from the promise that they were to enter into. So, so the Jordan was a symbolic divider between freedom and inheritance between salvation and reigning. Two different things. And so the issue was if 41 camps brings you to the banks of the Jordan, then the 42nd camp is on the other side of the Jordan. Now, again, you know, we're getting a little technical here, but I find it absolutely fascinating that when Jesus was 30 years of age, um, he went to be baptized by John the Baptist. Where was he baptized? He was baptized in the River Jordan. What happened when he was baptized? It says the heavens opened and um, the Holy Spirit showed up in the form of a dove and a voice was heard saying, this is my son who I love, I'm pleased with him. And it says from that point on is when Jesus' ministry began. So something changed radically after 30 years of life. Something dynamically and radically changed when Jesus passed through the Jordan and into this other place. Now, of course, you know, that's where anointing comes in. That's where Christ comes in. Christ does mean anointing. But what it's really saying is that when... When you enter into the Christ, it brings you into a completely different place and a different understanding. Jesus was always Jesus before he was baptized with John, but Jesus wasn't really Christ until after he was baptized in the Jordan. When the anointing, the Christus in the Greek, came upon him, it was a, it was a revelation and understanding that there is a transition here from Jesus and through Jesus into the revelation of the Christ, which is all about the fullness, the fullness of what this is all supposed to be about. So in those two examples, it's interesting, separated by 1,500 years, that you should have these 41 steps that bring you to a certain place, and then a 42nd step that actually 
takes you into what in essence really is, is the revelation of the Christ. So, I believe you'll never make the journey from Jesus to the Christ until you become intimately familiar with the word all. Now that might sound strange, but um, when you read Paul's writings about the Christ, particularly in Colossians and um, also some in Ephesians, which again, we're not going to take everyone apart because we've already done it. Um, there is this word that seems to be inseparable from the person or the being of the one called the Christ. Let me read you what, what, what Paul wrote, Colossians 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. So anything that's a thing was created for him and by him. All things, all things, every thing, any thing, all things for him and by him created. That suggests that in all things there is the DNA of the Christ in all things. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So there's something about this process that says Christ is in all things. If that's true, it means that, that Christ is the raw material from which everything has been made. Every person, everything. See, I, I think one of the issues is that we've been taught to thank Jesus and not to think Jesus. So because we don't think Jesus... We just embrace a series of things that we were told and we thank Jesus, which is right and which is good, but we don't think Jesus. We're not letting our hearts and minds say, okay, if we were to think this, what would happen if we then engage with this word all? What, what now does that mean? Because there's so much of what we have been taught has been tribal and to some. And so the word all becomes a very difficult word for us. Because we're trying to bring that word all and fit it within our parameters of what we believe is the way of acceptance, what is the way of belonging. And, and I think here is, here is one of the problems with that. We then make ourselves the powerhouse. Even little things like we invite Christ into our life. Well, the question is, do we? Or is it that from the beginning Christ was inviting us into his life? And if we understand that, who we think we are, instead of being worthless, becomes worthy. Because now he has invited us. He has thought us worth inviting. Why? Because all things made by him and for him and his heart and his desire is, is I want you in my life. You see, I think the, probably the greatest lie that I bought into, and I believe it was, was the lie of separation. 
that God is always somewhere else and something else and, and, and somehow there's always this gulf, there's always this and then you had to have the magic to fix the separation. I have to be honest and say that when I read from Genesis through the Bible, I don't see that in the same way that I used to see it. I see God still talking to Adam. I see God still talking to Cain after he's killed Abel. I see God putting a mark of grace on him, not a mark of shame. I see a whole process that says, yes, we, we, we lose our place and we lose our understanding and we forget who we really are and that causes all kinds of nonsense to come out of us and stupidity. But at the end of the day, God has not removed himself from us but has always been present in all things, wooing us, calling us, desiring us so that we can have the realization that he never went anywhere. He never left. So I believe that all things actually carry the divine DNA. So let me give you a few more just as we, as we kind of are just pulling these little thoughts from where we've been. Um, if you believe there is one God and that God is the creator of all things and that in him we live and move and have our being, which is interesting because is that scripture when in him we live and move and have our being and we are his offspring was something that the poets of the people that, that Paul was talking to had written. So is that scripture because it's written in the Bible or was it scripture before it was written in the Bible and was it wise before Paul ever made it wise in the context of how we understand God? These things fascinate me because I think Paul was drawing on a wider understanding to these people and says, look, your poets have got this right. In him we live and move and we have our being. We are his offspring. Notice that Paul didn't contend with them and say the problem with you is your poets have written that in him we live and move and have our being. And I'm here to tell you we don't. We're all separated so far and God is somewhere else that this is not true. But Paul didn't. He embraced that and said, do you know what? Your poets have actually got this right and you need to embrace it. In him we live and move and have our being and we truly are his offspring. If that's true, it means that Christ is the divine reboot for all things. When Christ comes into the situation, everything gets rebooted. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die... So in Christ, all will be made alive. Now, if you look at the Greek, what's interesting in this, and don't want to get too technical on this, but, but there's a little expression in there that, that has been added in order to facilitate a certain way of understanding. And it's the two words, will be. Right? Those words are not there. Will be are not there. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all made alive. There's no will be there. It's, it's in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. Now, in the context of, of you know, Christian doctrine and, and, and a lot of evangelical doctrine, what, what has bothered me for a long, long time is that if, if in the context of that, and I don't believe this to be true in the way that it's said, if in the context of that, the great majority of all humanity that ever lived uh, will go into eternal conscious torment because of the sin that came into the world through Adam. And, and some will manage not to because of what Christ has done. Then here's what that means, that Adam's power 
over humanity was greater than Christ's power over humanity. That what he was able to accomplish in his fall, or that is what he was called, was greater than what Christ was able to accomplish in the death of Jesus. Now, to me, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. It, it, that can't be the way that things are. This thing of the Christ must be much bigger and much stronger than any human could ever impose upon the human race. What Christ has done must be greater. So some people would call me a universalist. Whatever that means, I don't know. You know, I'd have to know what you mean by universalist. But what he means is I believe this thing reaches further and pulls a lot more people in and does a much better work because I believe when Jesus said it's finished, there was more power in his words saying it's finished than there was in Adam or Eve ever eating fruit from a tree. More power flowing into the earth through the Christ. So, um, one more statement, then I'll, I'll tell you what I wanted to add to that tonight. If, if the whole earth is full of his glory, which Isaiah 6 verse 3 says, the whole earth is full of his glory, and according to Colossians 1, 26, 27, the mystery kept hidden for the ages and generations is Christ in you, the hope of glory, then it must be true that the world is filled with hope when you manifest the Christ. So the manifested Christ brings hope into us, it brings hope into our world, it doesn't bring condemnation, it doesn't bring judgment, it brings this incredible flow of hope that rises up from deep within and allows us to connect with the greatness of all that it truly is. Now the term we could use and should use correctly to define this, I believe, is the word incarnation. And this is where I want to move into just adding something to it today. Um, I don't believe that the incarnation is a is a an event that was confined to Mary giving birth to Jesus. It's more correctly referred to as the nativity, but you see that would suggest that that the Christ, who was before all things, has never incarnated himself into the process and place of time in any other way than through Jesus. But we already heard from Paul that when they drank from the rock in the desert, that that rock was Christ, and they knew that it was Christ, and he knew it was Christ, and life was coming in, in, in the world by an incarnation, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, flesh as we understand flesh, but it was thing, it was through thing, through an earthly thing, through water. So John, John calls incarnation the word made flesh. I believe there are principles and steps which prepare us for and facilitate um, the incarnate reality for us. Word made flesh. And this, this is where I was wanting to drive in, you know, kind of stumble myself here through all of that stuff. To say that in the Christ, word made flesh becomes a critical thing that must not be just restricted to, to the birth of Jesus. John says, the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, without him nothing is made. Me made this as John's version of this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the Father full of grace and truth. I, I believe the lesson in that is if the word does not become flesh, 
It's simply a noise. The whole point of this, that in us, the Word becoming flesh, the Word becoming flesh, if the Word doesn't become flesh, it's simply a noise. And I fear that sometimes what people hear coming out of the church, to them is no more than a noise because it's not the Word made flesh. It's a series of statements about stuff rather than a manifestation of something in reality that is coming from the inside. So this is where I wanted to get. In the story of Mary, in Luke, Luke chapter 1, 26 through 55 is the, is the reference. We have the visitation of the angel who turns up to this young virgin girl. Some would say she was no more than 16 years of age. And of course we get this angelic conversation, instruction, request that the ultimately becomes the impartation within Mary of what would then cause an embryo to become Jesus in the flesh, the word made flesh in that way, living among us. And so Jesus was born of Mary, of, of human flesh, but, but divine conception. This is where the God and man thing comes in, human flesh and divine conception. But I believe that we're clearly dealing here with not just a single woman, but a foundational symbol. That sounds like Book of Mormon, doesn't it? Hello, my name is Elder Price. Um, so, so, my view of Scripture is that it, it, it is not just a record of, of events in time. It is, it is a way of conveying through events in time something much deeper than just the event itself can actually carry. What I mean by that is that the incarnation should not be perceived as a one-off event that happened to a young girl called Mary 2,000 years ago that gave birth to Jesus. Because the process by which this occurred and the reason by which this came about is much bigger than just the story itself of this virgin having a baby and giving us a celebration that we now call Christmas where we can all get presents. It's a foundational symbol or, or if you understand the word an archetype. It's an image that constellates a whole host of meanings within its communicated story. So within the story of Mary, it's not just, okay, by the way, 2,000 years ago, an angel turned up to this girl and she had a baby and that baby was Jesus and he came and died for the sins of the world. It's actually a story to the virgin part of all of us, of the desire of the one who is from the beginning to make himself present within us so that what can be born into the world can be the very expression of word made flesh of heaven showing up in reality. Now, I have a, I have a thought, a question, I have a questioning mind. And uh, I've asked myself many times the question, was Mary the first and only Jewish virgin girl that had an angelic encounter offering the opportunity to give birth to Jesus or to receive the impregnation of that that would be Christ in the earth, Christ in the world. And you might say, well, you have no evidence that, that 
that she wasn't, but I would say you have no evidence that she was. I would say in the same way for those that understand some of the stories, was Abraham the first and only one of the patriarchs to which the voice of God came to leave country people father's house and go to a land that I will show you. So we have no evidence, it's conjecture. Yeah, but we have no evidence to the contrary. All we know is that both of these stories are what they are, not because of the visitation, but because of the response. So Abraham got up and went, not knowing where he was going. The story was only the story because of Abraham's response. The story of Mary was only the story because of Mary's response. The actual key to this was the response. It was not some divine rape that took place on a virgin girl to say, by the way, you are going to give birth to Jesus because she might have not wanted to. I mean, you know, the stigma, everything else that comes with it. It was not rape. It was not sexual abuse. It was, a, it was an opportunity presented which has a implications for all of us in the context of how did this come about and what happened when the response was given. It, 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 it constellates a whole host of meanings within the story. And it's probably not by chance that in later times she became referred to as the mother of God. Now, you may relate to that purely and totally as a, as a, um, a Roman Catholic doctrine. And, um, you know, incidentally, just a little aside, um, dear old Richard Rose says something I think is, is wonderful. He said, he said, um, you know, he said the problem with the Catholic Church was when it became Roman Catholic, because Catholic means universal. When it became Roman Catholic was when the influence of Rome and the empirical system, which of course then manifested itself in the papal concept, because, because the issue was we... We, we've got to have an empirical system, therefore we must have a, a divine ruler appointed by God to whom God only speaks, which of course the, the emperors of Rome had become that. They were God's appointed leader and God spoke to them and they led. So, so Roman Catholicism introduced the idea of, of a pope who would then, in essence, for the church, and if you remember back in your history, it was called the Holy Roman Empire, which was the Roman Empire, was the Caesars and all of that. The Holy Roman Empire was how the Catholic Church expanded its power and its rule and its dominion, which of course we, you know, we, we've witnessed and seen over, over Europe. So um, that's not anti-Catholic, that's, that's anti-institutionalization that brings in empirical systems in any religious structure, which is always damaging and never helps to bring humanity to an understanding of the, of the Christ. But, so, so, Mary becoming known as the mother of God. Now, that's an interesting one because, um, you know, for those of you who've been around church, I was raised that a Catholic couldn't even be saved. If you understand those terminologies, it was just, that was drummed into me. You know, they, um, I, I must confess that I've found a great wealth of uh, understanding of many things within when you get back to a more pure understanding of, 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 of some things that would be the doctrinally a part of the, the Catholic Church, are absolutely fascinating and you know, happy to talk to anybody about 
those. It's totally changed my view on on uh, infant baptism, what they would call holy water, and uh, you know some issues like that, which are, which have fascinated me. But anyway, by the by, um, um, in 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 this whole thing, there was within it there was somehow a need when you get beyond the nonsense, you know, in every religious structure and system, there's nonsense. There was somehow a need to understand that that something more was happening in this whole issue of the incarnation in the context of Mary than just Mary giving birth to Jesus. Something bigger was going on. Some, something more dynamic was happening. Now, now what, what began to creep into there was, was some pagan ideas. Because uh, in pagan thinking, uh, and, and of course that pagan thinking moved into what we Christians would call pagan religions. Um, if you know anything about that, you will know that they always called the earth Mother Earth. Because within that context, what they were trying to wrestle with, and, and, and please, you know, the, the sad thing is sometimes in our Christian concepts we have become so restricted and judgmental of other people that we've not been able to receive truth. Now, I believe that from the beginning of time, people have wrestled with one question. And that question was, is there a God? If there is, who is God? And what's all this about? And of course, that has given birth to many, you know, ways of thought, cultures, philosophies, uh, religious concepts, but, but mostly all growing out of that same question. So don't be too just mental because it was people wrestling with the question. We, we've been given certain graces that have allowed us to grasp certain things that we've grasped. But if you didn't have that and you were left raw with the question, you would be looking for something. Now, you know, again, that's where things like Mary's, um, Mary's encounter with what she would call an angel, the angel Gabriel, the Bible would call an angel, becomes important within there. But um, what I'm trying to say in that is that, is that um, um, uh, there was something in this thought that was trying to say, there's something more going on here because in the pagan concepts, Mother Earth was, was always giving birth to life, was always bringing something forward and 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 i think they were trying to wrestle with this concept to say there's something more to this than just this virgin girl giving birth to this jewish boy there's something more it's important and and it's miraculous and it's amazing but there's something more now i don't believe mary is the mother of god you know that in one sense wouldn't make sense anyway it's a bit of a um you know it's it just it's a bit of a misnomer. But, but this idea of trying to wrestle with something more was going on here. Now, now, that's where I've come in my belief. Something more was going on. What I believe they were trying to grasp was this whole issue that in what was happening with Mary, there was a symbolic archetypal thing that was, was, was communicating something not just to Mary, and not just to be written in Luke, but to all humanity about Christ in us. Christ in us. See, you know, she had Jesus in her, but Paul says the mystery is Christ in us. How does Christ be in us? In the same way, 
that this expression of the Christ in Jesus was in Mary. The idea that all creation and things originate coming to being in the same way was driving some of this thinking. I think it's wonderful that, um, you know, Luke, Luke wrote, um, it's in Luke 1.48. He wrote something that obviously Mary had been verbally reported to have said, or maybe it was written, I don't know, but Luke in his investigations got all of them. Of course, um, uh, Mary does this song of thankfulness. And she says in there, from now all generations will call me blessed. Now, should we be calling her blessed simply because she gave birth to Jesus in the flesh, or should we be calling her blessed because she helps us understand the process by which the same miracle happens in us? So every element has significance just beyond the story of this Mary in in, you know, 2,000 years ago. So, let, let me just give you my little thoughts on that. So what do we have? We have a virgin. We have a visitation. We have a conversation. We have cooperation. And we have impregnation. So we've got these five things going on. A virgin, visitation, conversation, cooperation, and impregnation. Now, the virgin thing is because we don't want to complicate this with what is about to happen comes from any other source than the one source, okay? So, so the virgin thing is all about that. The virgin part to say, we want you to know that this comes from one source. This, this is a divine expression within human flesh this is divine what is happening is divine this is god doing what god does and then there's the fertilization because you know the question is do you believe that god put the embryo of jesus within the womb of the virgin we're conjecturing now because if he did in that sense, then you could argue that Jesus was not truly human flesh because what was put into Mary was already so divine and, and it was divinely fertilized. So Mary would simply then be a vehicle by which this divine thing happened to be. But you see, it's the embryo is Mary's. The fertilization is the divine. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. It, you know, we might not like it, but in essence, there are, there are sexual connotations to this. Do you understand what I'm saying? Without, without being smutty. There are sexual connotations that are saying, hey, you know, here's the deal. The embryo is in there, but, but something is being imparted deep within. There is an entrance to the deepest part that is going to make what is already in there becomes something that it would not have been without the divine connection. But when those two things come together, something begins to grow inside of, of, of the womb of Mary. Now all that comes because there's a, a visitation. And then what I like is there's a conversation because, you know, it's basically the angel comes and says, here's the deal, this is the proposal. 
And Mary in conversation says, but how could it be me? You know, how can I be worthy? You know, how could I become that conversation, see? And, and conversation's important. That conversation was important. And then there's the, the explanation that says, you know, basically, here's, here's what will happen. You know, you don't have to do anything. Which, again, is, is an amazing understanding, isn't it? You don't have to do anything. You just have to realize something, and then you have to say yes to what it is that you've realized. And then somehow in there, there's this miraculous thing happens within the cooperation. And, and, and with the cooperation comes a, an impregnation. Now, it's interesting that we should be talking on Sunday, last Sunday, about saying yes to life. Because I think Mary hands to us a process that begins with Jesus in the flesh. So she's handing to us a process. And, and I believe also the parallels between the process of creation and the story of Mary are, are, are really the same. Because in the process of creation, there's the virgin womb. And then there's a word according to how Genesis is written, let there be. And there's, within that, potentially a conversation. The interaction between what isn't and then what exists and the divine in, in some cosmic form and then within the context of that there is a, a cooperation and there's an impregnation and suddenly what we find is the earth comes into being. But it comes in the same way by what the Bible would call the seed of a word, the power of a word, the receiving of a word, the hearing of a word, the accepting of a word. Now I find it fascinating in the, in the, um, in the creation narrative that nothing somehow can hear. Which would suggest that within all things, right, which we talked about the Christ, within all things is somehow this inerrant ability to hear, to hear the voice of the divine, to hear the voice that's been resounding and abounding throughout all of what we can't even understand what we might call eternity or the non-existent or the existent that can't be seen or however you want to describe it. Somehow that voice that, that speaks through it, that voice brought the world into being. It, it brought everything that is in the world into existence. It brought the creation of man into existence. And now that same word here in the process of Mary is doing, is doing exactly the same thing. So, this is where that would leave me. Something spoken in that is received becomes word made flesh. Yes to life. That's what we said on Sunday. You've got to say yes to life. So we had a few things on Sunday. We said you've got to be receptive. You've got to be present. You've got to listen. And you've got to respond. The incarnation story is being receptive, being present, listening, 
and responding. It's the same process. What I'm trying to get through to you here is that it's the same process by which this thing began to come through Mary, which, which was the incarnation that, that released Jesus to us, that, that, that showed us the Christ made flesh, that now comes through us, comes in exactly the same way and in exactly the same form that requires no more striving from us than it did from Mary. It just needs, in the context of what it is, a response that says yes, 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 yes. A response. You could say that Mary's great contribution to our journey is handing on the fruit of her yes and inviting us to offer our own yes. I took all that time to tell you simply that in the context of the revelation and the manifestation and the release and the expression of the Christ, there is one thing that is at the core of that. And what's at the core of that is the invitation to offer our yes. Did Mary fully understand what the implications would be? I don't think she did, but she offered a yes. Because she wanted whatever that was to be a reality and was willing for it to go beyond where she was, what was the expected process. And, and, and in that came the Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The incarnation. And, and somehow there's an wholeness about this that, that some might find very satisfying to the soul because... The realization of Christ in you is triggered by the yes in you. That's where it comes from. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If it's covered by a bunch of fearful no's, then the Christ in you cannot release the hope of glory and therefore cannot be the continuation of the Christ in the earth. But when it comes down to the humility of a yes... You know, the, the classic words of, of Mary, let it be to me as you have said. So what has been said to us? That Christ is in you. Not a little bit of Christ, not, you can't, you know, portions. Uh, Christ is in you. How much Christ? All of Christ. All of Christ in all of you. Because he's in all things and all things were made by him and for him. It, it, the, the condition itself is not something that you have to create or attain to, or achieve, it's something that you receive and recognize and respond to with the big yes. Christ is in me. Therefore I am one with him and in him, and we are one. Just like when Jesus prayed, and John wrote it down, about as you and I are one, may we also be one. They're one in me and I in you so that there is this oneness of Christ in you, the hope of glory, the same power of that manifestation flowing through you, in you, and out from you. Now I think what, 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 that, what that does then initially, a little bit like Mary is, is it first of all makes you pregnant. It first of all starts to put your spiritual body through the processes 
like a pregnancy of where something's going on in here and at some point this is going to have to come out. At some point this is going to have to burst forth to a time of when actually what is in us becomes a reality flowing out of us and flowing through us. So it's not only the Christ in us, but then the us becoming Christ and expressing our role as, as Christ in the earth. Jesus didn't leave us behind as a mistake. He didn't leave us behind because he thought, well, I don't have the facilities to take these people away. He left us behind because that was the plan. Because the incarnation is still going on. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The incarnation in you, flowing through you. So, whatever you're doing that, we've tried to put another piece in the place. Let it be that the responsiveness that is there is one that echoes to us down from Mary, because she handed down to us the process of yes. Here's how you do this. You say yes. And here's how you understand and how you see the manifestation of the Christ. You do it by saying yes, and you let what all of that is begin to show itself for what it is in you, so that you begin to see it and experience it and express it, rather than trying to control it and corral it and make it tribal again and to some. And then something of that amazing word, all, begins to break out and emerge in your spirit. So I think we've said enough. So let's just uh, let's just pray. Father, pray that uh, out of all that we've said tonight, you'll help us to to grasp within our hearts and spirits uh, the little bits that will help move us on on this journey to being fully the expression of Christ in the earth. And that there'll come a big yes from us that, that we've so much been reared and brought up in our lives to be fearful and, and say no, especially to that which we don't always understand, but I, I just pray you'll help us to soften our hearts to, to do the yes like Mary did, to say, let it be to me as you have said, and then uh, to just see what happens out of that as the Christ becomes real in us and through us and for us and around us, and we begin to understand the fullness of Christ in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, bless you. We love you. Thanks for being here tonight. And... Uh, We'll see our folks on Sunday. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash QChurchYork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.